This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. I'm excited today, man. We've got this guest that's going to blow your mind in so many different ways. His name is Anthony Trucks. He's a former NFL athlete turned speaker, coach, entrepreneur, and author of multiple books. Most recently, Identity Shift, Upgrade How You Operate to Elevate Your Life. He's the host of two podcasts, Awe Shift, love that name, and Shift Starter, a father of three, married twice to the same woman, and he was actually a contestant on American Ninja Warrior. Those guys were dogging on you a little bit about being a bigger guy and not making it through. I didn't like that, but you were contested on there. (laughs) Uh, You can check out his website, anthonytrucks.com to learn more and follow his very inspiring Instagram page at Anthony Trucks. My man, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, man, no problem. I appreciate you having me on. Let's let's have a good, yeah, man. Talk to the people. That's right. Well, I, I was, we were talking before we record. I want to, there's so much to your backstory and so much to what you teach now. It feels natural to split it up. You probably do that on most podcasts. In fact, some of the ones I listen to kind of the cadence, but let's go back. You had a, a, a very turbulent upbringing, I would say. And I want to go to you. You went to the foster system at a certain point. Yeah. Um, and the story you've told, I've heard it on your Goldcast and other places is this incredible story of where your mother's crying. Another woman is there. And suddenly you and your siblings are walking out with this other woman. Yeah. The question that I was left with, like, if you don't mind, what happened? Why why were you going into foster care? Because later there's stories about your mother we'll cover, but what, yeah. what was the prompt? Was it required or was it your mother actually giving you up? No, it depends who you ask that question. If you ask my biological mom, she'll say that the state of California paid her boyfriend at the time $10,000 to beat her up so the state could take the kids away. That this is just, it's like a bad movie plot. It doesn't make sense. And as a kid, wow. you, you accept that. You're like, oh, I'm bad guy, bad state. The reality was, from what I gathered, what I found out later, was she just at one point was like, I can't handle my kids anymore. Come pick them up. And uh, we were put into the system. And I mean, that's not usually the norm for people to do that to their own kids. But, you know, she could handle the four of us and we got thrust into it. And I think in her mind, she was doing what was best for us, which was really best for her at the same time and ended up being the worst for us. And so it's just a weird. Yeah, man, that's the beginning of the weirdness right there. It happened. I was three years old. Yeah. Three years old. Unbelievable. And that's a memory you have at this point. Oh, yeah. I, it's incredible. Oh, I don't, I don't like the memory, but it's when I, you know, I find that whenever we as humans have those tumultuous moments in time or like there's hard stuff, our brain kicks on. Like it actually like just kind of sears it in. So I can tell you the layout of my house at three years old in that little apartment we had. But uh, yeah, there's some things that you you wish you didn't remember. But then there's also things that I think if I didn't, it wouldn't be who I am like now. My mind wouldn't be how it, it functions in a moment. Yeah. And there's so much to that. We'll talk about identity as we go a little bit later, you know, the shift and all of that stuff. But you uh, you entered foster care. And I think uh, if you don't mind just sort of explaining some of the experiences you had there, which I mean, we're breaking my heart as a father to listen to uh, some of the experience you had in foster care before eventually ending up with a very loving person. But some of the things you experienced yeah. there, if you don't mind sharing. Not at all, man. Yeah, there's uh, it's crazy. I have kids, too. I have three. And, and I can't imagine bring myself to do the things that were done to me, but you know, people were different, unfortunately. So there was one house that would, uh, they would put me in a chicken coop, like in the back, it's like this netted little, you know, kind of cage thing. And I would have to chase chickens. If I caught a chicken, I'd earn a meal. And if I didn't earn a meal, I didn't get to eat. And if I didn't get to eat, I would sneak out of the house or like out of the little front thing in the middle of the night, hop in a counter, take food. And if I got to food, I would hoard it because I have no idea when I'm going to get more. So I would get beat either for stealing the food if they caught me or having the food when they caught me the next day. So I have one house 
One, I was putting me in a shopping cart, pushed me down a hill towards moving traffic over and over. And I just kept falling out and getting put back in. Um, one house, like it was weird. Like I got dropped off and I was a trial kid. And so like, I was there for a week and the whole week, the Fed was talking about Disneyland as a little kid, four or five years old, like this is going to be heaven on earth. And the day came and I walk outside and the family gets in a van. I get another car to go off to a new foster home. And like that foster home I got sent off to, they put me in front of the house and they like held me down and forced me to lick the bottom of the neighborhood kids' shoes. So like there was a lot of weird stuff, man, that this was all before six years old. That is just heinous human things. And it wasn't the time of social media or videos reporting stuff. It just went under the radar. Wow. Were your siblings with you or were you solo? The first house, um, yes, the first house me and my brother Connor got to go to together. So we were actually there. Then at one point we went, I think we went back to my parents or my mom's house for like, uh, I don't know, a little window of time. We we're right back out pretty quick after. And the second time on, we were never together. Wow. You eventually land in a home with a, a person that you described as loving and eventually who adopted you, right? She is yeah. your mom to this. Uh, it, well, she is your mom. She's been your mom for your life. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about her? What was it about? Because you weren't the easiest kid at that point, okay. understandably so, to deal with. But what was it about your mom, uh, your eventual mom, this lady that took you in? Uh, yeah. How would you describe her? Ah, man, she was she's a nut. She was funny, <laughs> weird jokes and and off the wall. Just she was very loving, though, like caring, had a nurturing, you know, nurturing aspect to her soul. Um, and I'll be honest, she wasn't the most, you know, we'll call it book smart, wasn't, you know, focused on, you know, academics and wasn't I really go getter in terms of life. She wasn't super successful. Like we were really poor growing up, didn't have much. And in hindsight, like she wasn't the most, if I looked at her now, I would be like, there's so much more you can do, right? In, in terms of life. So I'll say that, but realize the heart of the human was what created me. And so she was a person that loved and didn't allow me to, to look at myself as you now not caring. When my biological mom, would would say things, create moments, like do things that hurt me. She was always there to pick me up, you know? And so she loved me on me past what I call logic. Cause I was also, like you said, bad. I think because I had that, you know, unsettled soul as a kid and I was just yeah. unhappy and emotionally distraught, there's a lot of that energy coming out of me and it wasn't coming out in positive ways. So I was getting into fights and breaking things and spread. I was just a crazy kid, but she loved me past what made sense. And I think at a certain point, which was eight years later, I was finally like, man, I've been seeking love from this woman who literally doesn't want to give it to me, but I got someone over here in his family that wants to give it to me. And I finally let them love me. And I was adopted at 14. Wow. Your mom along the way was in the picture. And I think you even said maybe acting out was trying to get, I mean, at that age, you want to just get back to mom, my mom. Yeah, totally. um, what, uh, what was it? What was the relationship you had with your mom as, as, as you know, over this time, this is what about age six to age 14. It sounds like, did you yeah. see her? Were you around her? Did you ever get to be with her? What did that look like? Well, you know, there's, there's a, a weird attachment because what you want is for that person to love you. So you do anything you can to get them to love you. So you, know, you do things and you have moments of visitation where you go back, but there was never something where she invested back in. And it was always me as a kid trying to earn love. So if I did get to go back at the house, which was very you know minimal, I would try to clean things and I'd beg for her to love me and keep me here. And, you know, and it would be shipped right back off. But the, uh, the experience was mostly like we had at a certain point in time visitation windows. And those usually take place like, you know, once every two weeks. And then if they don't show up and they're not happening, they go to once a month. And if it's, you know, not happening, it's once every two months and three months and it would expand out. And, and every single time, now I had three siblings who had the same dad. My dad was in the picture. Our, we had the same mom though, but on visitation days, he would show up. My siblings would show up. They'd all play. My mom wouldn't show up. I'd sit there and be crying by myself, playing by myself, you know, and then I would go home to my, my you know, whatever house I was at. And it never failed. She'd call. She'd be like, you know, hey, and make up some off the wall excuse is what was going on. At one point, 
She was uh, an astronaut with NASA. She was a Mensa member. Uh, she owned Apple. Like, I mean, off the cuff stuff. And she <laughs> she believed it to a T. And that would be the reason why she couldn't come and visit. She had a meeting or something. But she would always say, hey, wait by your window at eight o'clock. I'm going to drive by. I'm going you know, to pick you up. So pack a bag, sneak out. We're going to drive off and live together. So every time this would happen, it would be that visitation day she'd miss. I'd talk to her and I'd pack a bag and I'd sit there and, you know, by... 9.30, I'm crying myself to sleep. And every night up until like the age of 14, I would wet the bed. Like it was some weird psychological thing that I could not stop. Even, and I even knew it was coming. At like 13, I was aware, like this chick is crazy. But I'd still talk to her, you know, and have the conversation. She'd say, pack a bag. I'm like, cool. And I wouldn't even pack it. But that night, it was just that the, the way that she triggered my mind. At 14, I'm wet in the bed still. It was just a weird dynamic. So she was around and she was making my life hell, man. It was a very weird, unsettled, unsure, don't know who I am kind of experience of life that didn't even get its first kind of, you know, spark of solidarity until I was 14 and I was adopted. Is she in the picture still? Is she alive? Is she around? Do you know her at all? Uh, it's funny. We did a TV show. My wife and I were cast for a TV show called Relative Race. And part of it is to find relatives. And, you know, you can get like skip tracers that can find people. And this TV show is like, hey, look, we don't have this problem happen often. They're like, we find people. Either we find them alive or they're dead. We can't find her. Like we should like disappear off the face of the earth. Like we can't find her. So I don't know where she's at. The last I personally talked to her, I was 21, 21 years old. I just had my my first son and she somehow lived nearby me where I was in college. And there was some conversation on, and I was, you know, I'm aware I'm, I'm an intelligent human. And I was like, you know, she's like, I want to see my grandson. I'm like, the only way is if you honestly, for the first time in your life, tell me why you genuinely you know, gave us away in a foster care. No, no, no. The state of California paid my boyfriend $10,000. I was like, look, if you ever want to actually see this person, you need to at some point be okay with telling the truth. Until that takes place, please lose my number. Like when you're ready to tell me, come find out. But, and since then, 21 years old, we're, shoot, we're going on a good chunk of time since then. Yeah, like yeah. still no call. 18 years. No, 22, 22, you're 43, right? So 22 years from now. Oh, no, I'm not 43. I'm almost there, bro. I'm only 38. Oh, I thought you said 43. Oh, oh, you'll be an empty nester at 43. Five more years. Nester 43, yeah. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. I That's miscalculated that. So yeah. But yeah, still <laughs> no words, no, no, nothing from her since then. Wow, man. Wow. Uh, how does that, I'm just curious, how does that feel? Ah, uh, you know, I think at a certain point, the guilt of not caring subside. I think there's this, this inherent guilt we feel, whether it's society driven, that you have to want to mend it and you have to care about that. It has to be this thing. Like I have a whole side of my my kids world that they don't know that I don't even know you know and and I think the reality is, is if I live in that space like there's a hole I will try to fill it with the wrong things as opposed to realize that it's already filled with the right things so mm-hmm. at this point I don't have any anger towards her I don't have any disdain there's a good forgiveness journey I've gone through with many different people and she was you know part of one of those those areas and at this point in my life, man, I don't have any anger. If I saw her now, I wouldn't have like the spike of freak out. It would just be like, hey, um, if anything, it'd be like a, a little bit of pity. Like you missed out on a, a dang good human's life, man. You missed out on some amazing grandkids and, and an amazing capability within me. And I, if I like knew that one of my kids was doing something amazing and I, I couldn't experience it, I'd feel, I'd feel bad. Like I would, I would be like ashamed. And so. If anything, I feel like there's probably a level of shame she might be experiencing. And, and it hurts me to know she's experiencing that because I don't want it for anybody, but it's not like a vengeful pain. Wow. And you mentioned about your 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 uh, adopted mother loving you past the point that made sense. And I guess that's uh, that's instilled in you in that in some way, right? You learned how to love your kids in that fashion and how to forgive uh, maybe your own mother, your your birth mother in that regard. Yeah, Real quick. 
Oh, sorry. No, that's, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, real quick, couple of uh, things just to tie up your story a little bit before we head into, because I know 14 is kind of where football comes in. We'll talk about that. Yeah, man. Um, your father, he in the picture at all? Or, or do you know who he is, your, your birth father? I found him. So I didn't know who he was. And my birth certificate when I was growing up always said Daniel Patrick O'Byrne. My mom is actually white. And so O'Byrne's a white name. So something happened wrong because uh, I'm not white. So there's something <laughs> off, you know? And, and so I realized like, it's got to be a black guy. Just never knew his name. And so around the time... When I had my son, my biological grandmother, my mom's mom, she uh, somehow I had a phone call with her. I couldn't recall why, but it turned into a conversation of my fiance at the time, high school sweetheart, going, hey, ask your grandma for your dad's real name. I was like, nah, she's not going to tell me. She's like, ask. So I asked, what's his name? Oh, your mom said never to tell you. So I was like, ah, he said, she said she can't give it. My, you know, I'm not going to give the name. My, my fiance goes, you better get, you better dig. So I go, okay, can I ask for the name? She's like, no, I can. She's like, you're going to. It's like, all right, please. She's like, fine. So she walks in a different room. She says his last name is Osaibovo. So I go, oh, interesting. You know, and she's like, she didn't pronounce that way. She's like, Osaibovo or something. And so we wrote it down. I looked it up. There were five in the country, lived in Marietta, Georgia. And so actually, yeah, I did end up finding him, calling him heavy Nigerian accent. I'm a first generation Nigerian American. I have an older sister and a younger brother uh, on his side, which would go to explain why <laughs> he didn't want to bring me around. Um, but in the beginning, when I first met him, his you know his whole ownership was I didn't know you existed, I had no clue. And then when I found him at this time, you know it was kind of the conversation. Nine years later, he unfortunately passed away. And before he passed, before he even told me he had any cancer, he was like, "I just need to let you know that I did know about you your whole life. I just didn't know how to tell you." And at the time, I thought that you were going to be in good hands, but I, I I feel so bad that your experience was what it was. So it was just kind of a weird dynamic. Very, very uh, tortured. As just no, there's nothing great there, right? Like a tortured soul in his regard, it leads to your torture as a youth. And I, that's the other one thing I wanted to ask. When you jumped foster home to foster home, was there any level of reporting of what you were going through or was it just a oh, natural no. movement? Is that is that why you were moved? Yeah, no, it's just, they don't give you a reason. I think you just get picked up and moved around. Uh, seriously, it's you in a trash bag. Like literally, it's you in a black garbage bag, maybe some Legos or something, whatever you have as a toy. And they don't tell you when you're getting picked up. They don't tell you where you're going. And you never know if the place is better than the last place you went. Uh, back then, there's no video cameras, no social media, so you can't report much. And if you do report things, the interesting thing is most kids, the assumption is if I'm bad enough or do something, they're going to send me back to my parent because only my parent will put up with me. Yeah, but th yeah. that's just poor logic. It just means you go to a worse house. And so, you know, getting kind of kicked around over and over again was was my experience. And so, yeah, it just was a lot of turmoil, man. All right. Wow. Your, uh, your adopted mother up to 14 or when you were 14 is when she yeah. adopted you. So I'm assuming Trucks is her last name. Did you take her last name? No, Trucks is actually my biological mom's last name. It's just oh, a so good football that. name, so I kept it. No, Hart's my middle name. So when I was adopted, my my mom's, um, I guess her her husband, my step foster dad, you can call it that. I don't know. <laughs> he uh, his last name was Hart, so my middle name I changed to Hart. So it's Anthony Hart Trucks. Gotcha. Um, football comes into the picture at fourteen, yeah, correct? So uh -huh. Tell me a little bit about that. What was your? Did you were you just a natural, uh, you know, nope. sort of gifted athlete? No, I'm a stretch. I've seen photos of you uh, later on where you're gigantic and jacked. Beast, so dude. a lot yeah. of progress then. So what happened to 14? Well, 14, I was a skinny little kid. I could like suck my stomach in and you could put my hands in my ribs. I was a tiny little guy, man. But I was good at recess. I you put me out of recess against a little kid. Bro, I would dominate him catching footballs. Yeah. But on Fridays in middle school and elementary school, the biggest thing is I wasn't allowed to play football because my biological mom wouldn't let me. She had parental rights, so I couldn't do much. And I wanted to play. And it was kind of this journey where when I finally got adopted, I could try the game. But... I'd never put a helmet on, shoulder pads. I never caught a football like that. Whereas my peers, some of them, they're like, you know, six to eight years in. They've been playing since they were like five, you know? 
So these kids got a little bit, if you want to call it that, of a head start. So I'm going out there and I have no skill set or knack for the game. You know, I just, I was getting hit left and right. I'm running around like a crazy person. I don't know. I can't even figure out how to put shoes and cleats and shoulder pads and everything on. And we were poor too. Like I, I, most people know this. I played at 14. We were really poor growing up. I had a paper route from 12 to 14. I, and even beyond that, but it ended up being where I paid for my first year of football because we didn't have money for it. So my paper route paid for my first year on my own and I, I needed to get some cleats. I got some Nike sharks, but the only clearance size that they had was two sizes too big. So I got toilet paper, wrapped it around like towards flat, put scotch tape around it and cut it to fit the toe of my cleat so I could put my cleats on and run around with floppy shoes. And and so that was my my first couple of years, man. And then I was trash. Like I was not... I wasn't good at the game. I enjoyed it. You know, I had fun playing it, but it wasn't this thing where I was, you know, and all of us have this on the outset of something you love to do. The initial aspect is I suck at this. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where you talk about, you know, Carol Dweck's growth or fixed mindset. My mindset, it was fixed. It was interesting. Like I was like, I'm never going to be good at this. This sucks. I tried one more year. I was like, nah, I'm really trash at this. And I gave it up. And and there was some a moment in time that kind of opened it back up. But yeah, at 14, that was the first time I got to try that game. What was that moment, the moment that opened it back up? Uh, two girls, Mr. Howell's English class. Were, uh, and they, I had checked out. At this time, my adoptive mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, so the family's focused on her. No one in my family took school seriously. My older brother and everybody in my family, aunts, uncles, they all like, no one graduated from the high school with like on time. It was always GED or continuation. And so I had this like thing where I was like, well, I'm not a foster kid, man. I'm not supposed to do very much. I'm the adopted kid, I'm one of six in his family. Like we ain't got much going on. Mom is sick now. So I was like, I'm going to check out. And it was in my head, this assumption that foster kids, you don't have much. And I didn't know the statistics until way later. But I found out that if you go to any prison in America, 75% of the inmates are former foster kids. On top of that, I want to say half our homeless population are foster kids because they've aged out of the system. And less than 1% of us ever graduate from college. So like, it is not in the cards. And for me, I had that feeling early on of like, yeah, here we go, heading down the back path. And, and then these girls said something. And one of them was just one said something. But here's what she said. The reason I'm so bad is because I'm in foster care. And, and at face value, it's just a statement. It's like, hey, I'm in, you know, no big deal. But for me, it was this gift that I pray people get, which was I got to hear my excuse for giving up out loud and how stupid it sounded. And, and when you hear something, and it, it trickles into your brain. You go, that's a stupid thing. And you realize you're saying that. It goes, oh, like you don't like that, but you're doing that. You got to change something. So I went home and I remember there was a moment where I looked in the mirror and that, that conversation had been floating in my head all day. I just looked in the mirror at myself, my pupils. I said, Anthony, you're going to be great. And that was it. Like you're going to be great, Anthony. And that was the initial kind of decision and commitment to myself to start the path of improvement. We said we want to transition to shift stuff. This was the first moment of proactive, purposeful shift in my life. Your mom got sick with MS. How long did she survive with MS? Uh, she passed away April 15, 2014. So 17 years later. 17 years later. Wow. Yeah. Um, and we can get to that as we go through uh, the remainder of your story. So uh, I love the, t- the talk about the shift. And again, we're going to kind of get there. I just want to kind of complete the rest of this, yeah, of this backstory on football. So you, you obviously, yeah, you yeah. know, this will be marketed as, you know, a former NFL athlete and all that stuff. Yeah. So you, you got good. You got pretty good at some point. Oh, yeah, man. Because I had that moment and that moment turned on a different little thing inside my brain. So for me, I think what it was, was I got to this realization of I, I didn't like the path I was going. 
I, and I knew that if nothing changed, I wouldn't have a new, a new direction. It was going down this, this funky little spot. And I also had this, this really, it was like an internal anger with myself of accepting the situation I was in. Like it was this thought of like, dude, I had no control over the foster care system. Why would I let that thing control me for the rest of my life? Yeah. And I was like, nah, I got to change something. And I, I started doing things that most people won't do, uh, which is I did things that felt completely out of character. You know, it was, for example, I was skinny. I was slow. I couldn't catch. And so it, what your assumption would be is like, go work on that. And then most people go do it. But here's what takes place in the world. Everybody else goes, hey, bro, why are you lifting weights? You're skinny. Hey, why are you running around? You're slow. Why are you catching footballs? You got no hands. Like this is the kids talking to you. It's the same thing in the adult world of like, why are you starting a business? You have no business experience. Like this is the mentality. And so for me, I had to move against two grains. One was the part of me that says, it's called cognitive dissonance. Anthony, that's not who you are to do this. And outside people saying, Anthony, it's not who you are to do this. And I would get up every day and realize that, yes, it's not who I am, but if I don't do it, I won't have what I want. And I would get up and lift weights, run routes, do all this stuff. In the first you know, couple of weeks, it's awkward. You know? First month, it's still kind of weird. Two months in, you're getting a little more comfortable. Seven months later, though, there's a level of investment as a human that creates a different return that most people do not understand until they've gotten to it. And what happens is, is us, we're investment-based humans, investment bias, we'll call it, which is if I give something, I want a return, man. And if I give money, I want my money back, right? Or I want some, I want the hot dog I purchased. For me and humans, when we give the energy and effort to something, the return is a confidence and a self-esteem and eventually a completely different sense of self. And when I showed up the next year to football, there was this mentality and it wasn't something I could speak. It wasn't something that I could, I was throwing out there was something that lived in me in the moments, the instinctual unconscious moments. And what it was, was I have done too much work in the dark for you to take what is mine in this light. And the light was like practice. It was drills. It was the footballs in the air. It was you're coming at me to, and I'm, I'm going to tackle you. It was me coming at you and you aren't going to tackle me. It was like this mentality of like, I earned this way before we got here. Don't even think for a moment you're taking this from me. And so I showed up with this different energy of, a, of like a monster and is, a, is an animal inside. And that turned into what you see in, in the world now. Like I wasn't just, here's the thing. I call that dark work. It's this, it's a, it's a something I'm, I'm building in the background, but it's this realization. Everybody I've ever noticed that's successful. There's moments in the background that they did things that were unsexy, uncelebrated, unsupported by most of their people, but they did it to where not only did they develop the skill set like I did, but they developed the confidence and identification internally to deploy that skill set when it was needed. And that's what I did at that time at 15. And it turned into a way better athlete better performance, got moved to varsity. A couple of years later, I got a scholarship to you know, college and it all goes on from there. Yeah, But it all happened in that window of time where I initially had this, this first, we'll call it introduction to what it meant to do dark work. Did you, that's, that's incredible. And, and, you know, look, this go abundance thing we talked about, this community that I'm, that I'm a part of this podcast represents is about getting around other people that, you know, a lot of us, you know, the, the voices in our head and our regular community are telling us why we can't. And we mm -hmm. want to get around people that are telling us how we can or that we can yeah. or supporting that future version of us. You had a lot of naysayers. Did you have anybody around you in that time that were a community? You said most were telling you, uh, you couldn't. Was there anybody that you latched onto or did you have a mentor or a guide or a community? I had my yard duty and one of my football coaches is funny. The principal at one point was like, Anthony's not going to make it to college. Like I found the grapevine was saying that very weird stuff. So you have that, but you know, what's interesting is like, it's kind of like the weight room. I can go to the weight room with my workout buddy, but I still have to lift the weights. Mm -hmm. He can be supportive all he wants, but I still have to lift the weights. 
And if I only go to the gym when my friend is there, I'm not going to really get the most I can. I got to be able to do when no one's watching, when no one's their spot. I got to do that stuff. And I think what turned into like, you know, the guy meeting me later was I still have this creepy internal like compass that I, I do not need you to push me. Now it benefits me if I have friends and accountability and help. It's a humongous help. It makes the path so much easier, but you still have to be able to understand that the reason you're respected in groups like that is because you can do that work without someone having to baby you. And so the, the duality of having great teammates and great coaches like I did have and my ability to outwork them so I even surprised them with how I showed up, that's what created success in the game of football and then later in life. You go to college, you had a short-lived NFL career, a terrible injury that, that knocks you out. Yeah. This, I think, it brings us to, and you, you can go into that if you'd like, but it brings us to this first shift. So now yeah. you're not a football player anymore, right? This identity you had formed from the age of 14 to early yeah. 20s, right? So you're not a football player anymore and you go into business for yourself. Yeah. Talk about that shift. Was it God, successful? It what did that look like? Nah, I wasn't successful at all, bro. Uh, I guess well, that answers it. <laughs> statistically, 73% of football players leave the NFL and go bankrupt within three years. Yeah. And at this point in time, I'd had, you know, I had three kids. I married my high school sweetheart. The first one was in college. Second was after the NFL, you know, lost my career. And it's just this internal little compass that goes, you're a football player, but you're not playing football now. Who are you? Hmm. And this is any, anybody's experienced anything remotely close to a change in life that's outside of what they've invested into, right? I'd invested into football, but I couldn't do this thing. So it's like, maybe you had a kid go off to college. Maybe you went from you know being an employee to owning a business. Maybe you went from owning a business to being an employee. Whatever it is, there's something you've invested in. And then one day you wake up and you aren't doing that. You can't do that. And you question, well, what is my worth? And so we try to fill that hole with stuff or find the different places. So I come home, uh, I've lost my career as a football player and I open this gym business because my I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm Anthony Trust. I'm going to get this thing done, you know? And nine months in, I'm looking at bankruptcy because I have no idea how to run a business. And I, my ego is way too big. So I don't let anybody tell me anything. And then my marriage is falling apart because I'm never home. We had twins, newborn twins and a four-year-old. She's at the, at the house. I'm gone. 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day, trying to build this thing up. I'm not even making any money. It was just a crap show, dude. And so my life fell apart. I was out of shape. I uh, wasn't, you know, building a gym business. It just was, it was crazy. And so that, that first shift was me pretty much blowing my life up because I wasn't focused on the right things. There's a metaphor I tell in my book, and it really breaks down to what I think a lot of us experience, but nobody frames up. And it's, it was the fruit of my labor. Football was a fruit of my labor. I mean, you have a fruit of your labor too. It's things you've done. And, and sometimes you don't realize that like that fruit falls off the tree, it rolls on the ground, it hangs out for a bit. It can be okay. It can go from the ground to the farmer's you know, market to the store to my house, but it's eventually going to rot. And when it rots, you feel like that. That's how I was with football. I left the game. I was okay for a bit, but eventually I felt rotten, man. So I was focused on things that kind of, you know, bring the fruit back to life, but I couldn't. And so everything fell apart. I get divorced. I'm living in a 500 square foot studio apartment. Um, everything's just to, to crap, right? And it took me three years after divorce to wake up a little bit and realize that the truth of how we operate as humans is we lose sight of what's important. I thought, and we all think we are the fruit. We've never been the fruit. We've always been the tree. The tree is the thing that created the fruit in the first place. It's where the, the nutrients, the skills, everything happens in the dang tree. And so when you only focus on the fruit, you let all the rest of the fruit die. It's why the fruit of my health died, the fruit of my marriage died, fruit of my parenting died, fruit of the business died, because the football fruit was all I focused on. And when you can go back and take care of the tree, 
put in the right soil, right? It's the right environment with the right people like you're talking about. And you have the ability to have all that stuff come in. The fruit still has to be grown by the tree, right? But you have all the things the tree needs to produce that fruit. And in my life now, I believe I've created sweeter and more abundant fruit than football ever was going to be in my life because I finally came back to the tree. I think this is a really good point to talk a little bit about the power of identity. Yeah. Um, I love this analogy of the tree versus the fruit, right? The, you know, you could even do a you know branch versus trunk level, right? Something like that. But you're you're right, the, the the core of it. And I've heard you talk a lot about identity and uh, authenticity, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, being and and well, that's what your book is about. <laughs> Obviously, you yeah. know, identity shift, upgrading your operating system essentially, so that you can upgrade your life or elevate your life. How do I want to phrase this question? You have identity, right? You have the authentic version of you, and mm-hmm. I think your thesis is essentially that. Look, there's a there's sort of a spectrum within you. Uh, your identity is is what it is, but then there's levels within that that you take it to. How much you invest in you brings your brings brings you to the best version of you or the worst version of you, all within this identity. I guess the question I'm asking is, do we have a core of who we are that's sort of generic across the board? Is there a level of that when you come to when you come to who you are, who you are authentically? Yeah. Uh, is that let's start there. Is there is there like is there a core identity that we all have? And how do we harvest or understand what that is? Like what our yeah. purpose is, what our authentic self is? Well, the thing is, it's not so much tied to purpose. It, it, it's, it's a very interesting conversation. I could, here's the most I could make it concrete. Your identity is this, is this thing that floats in the background, like you said, operating system, but no one's really paying attention to it. And so identity in my definition is who you are being when you're not paying attention to who you are being. It's just my natural state of flow. I wake up, I do certain things. Some things are easy. Some things are hard. I say certain things. I have certain judgments, certain perspectives. I just have a natural flow. And if you think about who you were, let's say when you were 18 years old, you can't, it's your different person. Like, you know, like I'm a different guy than I was back then. But that guy had a state of flow. He was just being. And him doing that did whatever he did in his life. At this stage of my life now, I can handle more, say more, do more, see things differently, but I'm not always consciously thinking about it. It's just naturally flowing. So just assume it's like who I'm being, being actions. Now, your life, which we have, is a result of your actions and your habits. Mm-hmm. Some are very conscious. I choose to do this. I choose to do that. A lot are just instinctual. We just do certain things, say certain things. And in fact, we're not even aware of how we're functioning. We're just doing stuff and going, this is my life. So identity shows up, not in so much the authentic self, but it just shows up in who you are being in this moment without consciously thinking about it. And when people go in and say, well, how do I adjust that ant? Well, how do you adjust anything? You spend some focal time on it until after a while, it becomes second nature. It's like riding a bike, right? If I want to elevate that system to where my, my instinctual operation is more output without thinking, that you just got to raise your elevation of identity. And so it's, it's intentionally saying, look, I'm no longer going to eat this kind of food. I'm only, I'm only going to work out in this way. And then after a while, in the beginning, it's hard because it's not who I am. It's out of character. It feels wonky. But after a while, people would look at you and like, it would feel out of alignment with humanity if I'm, if I've been eating no, no meat to even eat meat. It's beyond like not, you know, being a vegan. It's like who I am to not eat meat, right? Or I work out five days a week. I'm not a kind of, I can't miss a workout. It's not who I am to miss a workout, right? So you think about those kind of aspects. That's a healthier human. What if that happened to your business? What if in your business, you stopped trying to say like, look, I don't, I don't cold call people. And it got to the point where it was like, you couldn't finish a week without getting a hundred cold calls in. Different way your business runs. It's a different identification, different elevation of function. Or maybe your person that goes, we just talked before. Some guy goes, I have someone that follows me around the internet 
and yeah. I take notes. So I'm a guy that I, I'm going to make sure I can do the most. I'm going to have somebody make sure I follow up. I don't like that. I identify as the guy who's like, I want to have a great conversation. I don't want to have homework from this call. I'm not the kind of person who takes stuff away from the call to give me more work to do. Hmm. That's just who I am. I identify differently. And so when we look at identity, we think of it as this philosophical, esoteric, spiritual thing. It's not, man. We see it in every human we see. And that person can adjust and shift that anytime they choose by taking a cognitive perspective of how can I proactively change this until it becomes second nature to do it. How do you, how do you know that identity? You talk, we, we, I made the mistake of kind of lumping in authenticity and you've, you've done a great job, I think, of separating that out. Like, let's put that aside. We're talking about identity right now. It's not Part necessarily it. authenticity. Yeah. I think what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is what you're doing is, is reflective of who you're being, right? So what you do, the outward things yeah. that you're doing are reflective of what you, of who you're being, which is your yeah. identity essentially, right? Mm-hmm. How do you resolve? And this is for me, honestly. <laughs> I don't care about the listener right now. How do you resolve? Um, who you're being, that identity, yeah. and whether or not it's linked to who you are authentically versus what you're conditioned to be. Yeah, yeah. So it's good. So essentially, we've all been conditioned. Let's start with that. So it's, it's we start there, right? We were all programmed in this identity, teachers, preachers, coaches, leaders, just programmed. It's a study that took fleas and they had these fleas that could jump super high and put them in a jar. And they were jumping out of the jar. And what they did is put a lid in the jar for three days. And all of a sudden, the, the fleas that took the lid off would never jump beyond that lid. In mm-hmm. fact, their offspring all the generations after that would also never jump higher than that lid. You're programmed there. Like it's literally almost, you almost wake up when you're born and taught by your parents and teachers, this is what's possible. And we identify with that. That's the highest thing we shoot for. So keep that in mind, right? The other part of it is opening your dang mind to what's going on out there and seeing things differently. So I would call this a shift method. It's the way I actually reprogram. And so the first thing is, I love the statement that goes, it's hard to see the label when you're inside of the jar. Hmm. Like we, we don't really see who we are and there are people above us that do see it. And some people don't want to see it because the ego might get poked. I mean, imagine you've been living your life the same way for 40 years and someone comes up and rattles your cage and says, you've been doing it wrong or you could have done it better. What do I do? Oh, I can accept that I've been doing it wrong or I can try to demonize this person and their, their feedback to make me feel comfortable. Most people choose option two. Oh, you're crazy. I don't want to do that. That, 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 that. We bring it down to our size as opposed to going, ooh, that feels real uncomfortable. But you know what? They got a point. That's what my label says. I haven't been communicating well. so my marriage hasn't been working. Or I'm money hungry. If my business wasn't, won't, won't work for some reason. I'm only focused on money. Whatever that label says, when somebody can see it and show it to you, they show you their limitation. And so you can actually proactively reprogram it, but you have to be okay doing things that do not feel like who you are right now. And when you can accept that reality and go, oh, there's going to be some things that make me feel like I'm, I'm in an alien's body. When you can do that, your life will be completely different at every level. And the way that I have told people to focus on this is to go, look, there's some things that are, like you said, authentically you. That is genuinely who you are right now. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be that forever. But here's what I focus on. I am, I am in no way the fruit. That's the outcomes, right? I am the tree. What's the tree's job? To grow to give effort to making fruit. So I identify with the effort, not the outcome. I'm the kind of guy who like, yeah, even if I tried that and was funky, I gave the effort, man. I tried the podcast, tried that speech, tried that show, tried whatever it was. I tried it. And even if somebody goes, oh, you failed at that. Yeah, but the goal wasn't 100% just to succeed. It was to try. That was my goal. Could I get up and do it when no one else would? And the funny thing is when you operate in that way, 
most of the time it works out because everybody else isn't giving the effort because they identify with the outcome. And God forbid that outcome isn't what I want it to be. So I get fear. I, I have judgment, imposter syndrome. I'm not worried about any of the outcomes of who I am or who I've become today or the future. It's just, am I willing to give the effort that in time could become the person that has that? If I identify with that, the rest becomes easy. Identity itself. That, that's great, by the way. I, I wrote down a bunch of stuff. Um, and I was just thinking through, as you mentioned, like labels and that sort of thing. So I'll ask it this way. Identity itself. So you, 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 you create your identity, which I completely agree with. There's a, a writer yeah. named uh, Benjamin Hardy who wrote Who Not How in a book called Personality. Personality isn't permanent. And it's funny. Yeah. In that book, he featured this guy named Andre Norman, who was a uh, like a hundred year convicted convict, man. Bad, bad dude yes. who completely. Oh, do you do? Who completely yeah. converted himself. I had him on a show uh, a, a year or two ago. Yeah, Unbelievable goes, dude, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, he goes into prisons now and talks to kids and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable guy. So. So I love the concept. Same time, just from to bring it to the the tactical or the practical for yeah. for many of us. Like, so how do you describe identity specifically? Like, what is? Do you have do you have a phrase? Uh, like, because I think of I'm a husband, I'm a father. Yeah. Those are labels. Are those identity? Or how do you how do you do it? How do you how do you identify identity? <laughs> so the good thing is realize you have different identities in different places, right? And. And identity is what you would just, what you would battle. Here's the best way to figure out. It's hard. It's like, you got this and put this point on. If there's something somebody can say to you to challenge you that you would step up and battle for, that's a part of your identity. So if somebody comes and says, hey, you're, you're not a fa- father. You kidding me? I just paid this kid's school for 17 years. and He's going to college. Like, that's my son. I'm a dad, right? Yeah. But if somebody says, you're not an F-14 jet fighter. Oh, you're right, bro. That's not what I am, right? Because I don't have any investment. I can't say it's who I am. So first off, like you have different ways of, of being able to see where you are. But what I really have noticed is you express parts of your identity in different places. So you can be different in your marriage, in your parenting, in your business. If I was talking to you right now, like I talked to my wife, it would be weird. Like, hey, baby, how you, you know, like, it's just different. It's a we might end the podcast. You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a different expression of the identity inside. We have multiple ways we express ourselves mm. and that's okay. But the reality is there are going to be places where if you want to say, what is my identity? It's whatever you would own that is you. Now, how do we get to the ownership? The ownership is the investment bias. It's the dark work. Like if you if you want to have that guttural, instinctual sense of like, think about it. There are certain people that will show up to, a, say, a job interview. And one person has done no dark work. They just kind of want the job, right? And they just kind of like they're going to try it. Other person's going, hey, I've, I've done this job for three years. I've studied this. I've read this. I prepared for this interview. They walk up there. The two of them, there's a different sense of how somebody shows up. They're going to battle for that job because they know they got it in them. Whereas the other person, they're not going to, they're going to be easier swayed from not doing it because there's no full investment. There's no identification there. They haven't done the investment to have the bias of return saying, I am dope at this. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between somebody going into a boxing ring who's boxed for a week or boxed for 10 years. The 10-year boxer, I am not going to lose this fight because I am a boxer. Other person goes, I've been trying boxing for a little bit. It's, it's the ownership of it. So when I will, how do I craft my identity? How do I do something so long that it becomes something that I will protect as part of who I am? The only way you get there is because you put the work in. Somebody listening or, and I would relate it to maybe you coach, obviously. So people that you coach. When you go into this work, what is the, you could take it one of two ways. What are the two, three things that are most commonly in the way of somebody getting mm-hmm. to what they're trying Good to question. get to? I get let's, it, start, I get let's start with that. Yeah. First one I get is ego. It's always the ego. 
unenroll me. The funny thing is people will go, I'm not perfect. I go, okay, cool. And we start digging and then we find things. And then they're like, no, no, I'm good at that. Like you just said you weren't perfect. And I just put one out and it's pretty transparent. No, no, I'm okay there. So the ego gets in the way because as much as we, we want to improve, we also don't want to feel bad about who we are at this moment. We protect this position. And the thing is, uh, I don't know who said it, but if you protect your limitations, you get to keep them. Mm. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know who said it either, but that's a great quote. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. who I got to figure out who it was. It's not mine, guys. It's not mine. But the <laughs> idea is like, that's what we do, right? So first thing is the ego is a humongous issue. The second thing is we choose to get perspective from the wrong sources. We, we typically will ask for help, which some people go, they ask for help, but they ask the wrong people for help. They're asking people who are not where they want to go. Uh, we always hear that same um, statement of the average of the five people you surround yourself with. Yep. And I have found that it, it to be half truth. I believe you're the average of the expectations of the five people. So I need to find people who have higher expectations that I want to be around, right? So it's really taking the feedback from those individuals. Because if I can let the ego down, I want people who are going to challenge me in an uncomfortable way because their expectations for themselves and the group are higher. When you have the expectations at a high level and you're able to take the ego back, you can now take feedback. The worst thing is someone with high expectations giving you insight and you go, no, you're tripping. And then they just stop giving you insight. Why am I going to go and try to help you when you won't even take the first insight? Yeah. So it's the second piece I find becomes an issue. The third piece is people have zero discipline because they are operating in a structure of hope. Uh, somebody says they're smoking the hopium. I don't know who said this, but a lot of individuals, they're trying to stay disciplined to an idea, disciplined to an emotion. The interesting thing about discipline is the word disciple is to follow and plan plans to follow a plan. Most human beings have no structure of understanding how to take what they want to have happen, what looks good in their head, and making it real. Therefore, you can't get the, the, the time spent. You can't do the dark work. You can't get the ownership because one day you're going to wake up and not feel like doing it and it won't get done. And you go, oh, I don't feel good. And then you don't do it. And the next day you go, oh, you're, you suck. Yeah, you do suck. And it spirals downhill. So for me, the big thing is I don't like letting people assume that because you bought a planner, your solution is solved. You need, a lot of people buy planners with no idea how to plan. Like, I got a planner. Great. We can do that. Um, put things in it. Sounds good, bro. Um, how do you take what you've dreamt about, what somebody has told you to do and make it real? How do you make this where I can open the, you can open my planner right now and know who I am for the next four weeks. You'll know what kind of husband I am, what kind of father I am, how I can take care of my health, wow, what, what part wow. of business is important. It's all there. That's and amazing. so my job is to stay disciplined to the plan. And that's where I become Anthony that I, I like. I have pride for that shows up in the world the way he does. It's not based on, I want to be this guy. No, I know how I know. I plan on what I'll be. That's how I become that guy. Stay disciplined to that. It all flows in. Who I am. That's a, because if your plan is empty, then you have no plan. That's who you are. That's the identity you have at that point, right? Dude, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, but it's not, it's not a person. It's not, it's not a genuine thing. And that's the hard part is people, they don't want to be regimented and structured to it. They want to have freedom. I go, it's great. But the problem is you don't have freedom of your mind. Because every day you wake up and you aren't doing those things because you don't feel like it. Therefore, you're a prisoner to your guilt. I want to do this. I didn't do this. I'm not being a good husband. And you're just guilty. So what do you do? You distract yourself. You drink it away, smoke it away, party it away, whatever you focus on a business too much. All because you couldn't just write it down and follow that thing. And it's like it's having a plan is actually something that gives you more freedom. Like today, we're done. 1.30, we're going to be done. It's on the calendar. I'm going with the kids to the veranda, this little spot nearby. I already get some food. My mother-in-law's going to hang out. I'm done for the day. 
And I'm not even, there's no, there's not even an ounce of guilt because I got everything that needed to be done, done today. And I'm good. Right. So, so whether I have a book I want to write, speeches we're doing, teamwork to get done, courses going on, all these things going on. But at 1.30, everything that has to be done today for me to be who I am is done. Other things wait for the next few days. They're built in the way they're supposed to. So I'm actually more freedom because I have a regimented structure. This is one of those, you're a host. So you, you host podcasts. Yeah. And of course you're tuned into the guest, but you're also thinking a little bit about, okay, let me make sure I have the next question with me. You know, so I got to go back and listen because I know I'll pick up stuff without the pressure of being the host. That'll be, yeah, I get that you. Was it's hard, man. Unbelievable. Honestly, I, for those listening, man, I hope you go back and listen to that last, I mean, the whole thing, but the last few minutes, especially what you just described to me made so much damn sense. So I appreciate you pouring that out here. By the way, it was Kelly Lee Phipps who said, if you argue for your limitations, you get to keep them. I've never oh. heard of that person. I nice. thought it was like a Jim Rohn quote or something, but uh, yeah, I know who it was. Yeah, maybe he borrowed oh. it. But uh, all right, last thing before we kind of talk about your book here and wrap <laughs> up. With all of that said, uh, you mentioned ego and hopium, stra- you know, a, a, a strategy of hope. So you coach these folks or folks that are listening, saying, "Okay, yeah, that's me. I, I'm not what." So, so okay, I get it. I got to plan better. I got to do this. I got to do that. But are there a couple of steps that you would say to people, or maybe to your coaching clients, that they take next? My ego's in my way. Whatever's in my way. What yeah. are the one, two, three? Is it just an affirmation to start, or what do you do to to kind of jump off and get yeah. in the right direction? And that's, I mean, it's it's a it's a bigger question, but it doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's only big because in my head, I know we do right, and so we go through a whole process to do this, and we have three steps to our whole methodology. It's called C shift sustain. It's all it encapsulates what I just kind of said. Yeah, the, yeah. the biggest thing is you have to see yourself, and most people have they have no people or inability to find out how to get the right people to give them the right insight. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this thing where I I, uh, I talk about we all have a pinky finger power that no one's paying attention to. So one of the first things I tell people to do. It was, here's what a pinky finger powers. I did American Ninja Warrior. I had to train my grip because I'm a heavy guy. And so I had to have a good grip strength to do this. I asked the guys, hey, I'm doing my training. What should I focus on for grip strength? They said, there's one finger that most people don't think about. You got to train. It's the most important finger. And I go, what's that finger? And they go, well, at the end of the day, most people don't know, but if you cut your pinky finger off, you lose 50 plus percent of your grip strength. Really? I go, the pinky finger? Like, that's the one you like, you, you pick your nose a little bit with. You know, like, it's not really as important. They go, no, it is. It's attached to so much musculature. And I've tried it. If you try picking something up with, without your pinky right now, you'll feel like it's weird, but you put the pinky and I can squeeze more, right? Yeah, so true. it's the most insignificant part of us that holds the most strength. And so what I tell people is send a message to your friends and family and say, hey, if you could extract one thing from my life to plug into your life to improve it, what would that be? And they are the ones that see your label, the good ones too. And they'll, re- they'll relay and mirror back to you some interesting things. And then what you ask them is like, if you could have me stop doing one thing you think is hindering that, what would it be? And they'll also give you something. So now you can get a little bit of the information that may not be super sexy and enjoyable, but you'll have an idea of like, oof, this is an area where I can probably work on something. Then what you do is ask yourself, this is the shift phase. This is a really, I'm talking maybe half of 1% of how we do things. Yeah, sure. You want to find out if I wanted to improve this area in my life, uh, say I score it from zero to 10. If I want to improve this by a value of one in the next 30 days, what action and or habits can I implement? What can I put into my life that is going to be written down, alarm set to it in my calendar, unmovable, right? So maybe it's your marriage. Maybe they say, you know, you're not the best husband. Cool. What can I do to improve it by a value of one? Maybe it's every night before bed, I spend 20 minutes, I turn all my phone off, computer off, and I'm going to sit and ask my wife, how was your day? That could improve it by a value of one. 
can go from, you know, a three to a four. It's all I want. I don't want to do a 10 right now. What's the value of one? The idea is you start weaving these things in and all of a sudden it now becomes your normalcy to be a person that talks to your wife 20 minutes a day. Now it's not a chore. It's a thing you, you feel awkward not doing. And it becomes consistent. The last part of what we call sustain. The sustainability is a big piece. Most people will try something, don't have a great success with it, and they stop doing it. Whereas the reality is the journey to identity and joy is an interesting one. And it runs through that sustainability because the first time you try it, it sucks. It's a 10 of 10 of pain. I go, man, I don't want to do this. I don't. Most people walk away, but somebody who wants to be great goes, I'm going to do it again. They try it again. It's nine of pain. Someone goes, what are you, masochistic? Why are you doing this to yourself? Stop doing it, you idiot. No, no, no. I learned something. Let me try it again. They do it again. It's like an eight and a half and it just keeps going. But eventually, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and it gets to zero. But zero, zero isn't painless. Yeah, you got to fix it, man. I know it feels yeah, that's like right. just start sliding it's all good. Yeah, zero, go for it. Zero is what people think is painless, but it's zero is not painless. It's joy, right? When you first started this podcast, I'm going to assume maybe it was like a, a, a six or a seven of pain. Like you're kind of good, but we're getting better. But now it's like, I'm excited to get on. Like I'm good at this, you know? That's what we're trying to do. Because when you have joy around it and you enjoy doing it, you do it more and it becomes effortless effort. Now you're an individual who identifies as, look, every night, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. It's my wife's time. Mm-hmm. And that's who I am now. And then you stack something else on that. You add your kids to it. You add some you know, routines for recovery. We start adding things. And so if you can see what you have to work on, make these small shifts, sustain them over time, that's in a simple way how you start changing parts of your life. The intricate piece is, how do I take a step back and look at all of my life, all right. of my goals, and make those things kind of matriculate together in like a little web and then infuse that in? And that's where the magic of what I do comes in at a bigger level. Incredible, man. And by the way, from the very beginning of this podcast, I was great. There was never nerves. I was always it's 10. It's all good. That's what you need, man. So I was too, except for I was a little bit trashier. <laughs> I'll just mess with you. Um, all right. Talk about real quick the book, uh, Identity Shift. Uh, yeah. You know, what were you, what, what, you know, what do you hope folks take away from it and how can they get it? Let's start there and then we'll, we'll yeah. kind of wrap up after. Well, the way I wrote the book was uh, I wanted to have people grasp identity as not just this idea because we've heard about it all of our life, but never really had an understanding of it. And so the first half of the book is getting the concept to get into somebody's heads. They go, oh, that's what it is. And then people go, okay, great. That's what it is. Like, how do I shift this? How do I make this thing, you know, better? And so that's where the back half of the book is the tactical. It's actually do this, work through this framework, ask this question. Like some of the things I talked about now, they're more in-depth in the book. So if somebody picks the book up and goes through it and does the actual work, they'll find that over time, if they can do what I call is the dark work on top of that, just do these things. There'll be a moment when you wake up and this is a beautiful moment. This is one where I can give you an idea of it, but to have it proactively is different. If I ask you to think back to who you were 10 years ago, mm-hmm. all of us will go, ah, I, it's hard to, to get back in that mind space. I was a different person back then. We say that. Sure. But from then to now, most of us didn't proactively change. We either do, we make changes in two ways, on demand or when crap hits the fan. Hmm. And so most people over those 10 years, crap just hit the fan. I am trying to give you a way to do it on demand so you can do this work and come back and go 90 days, not nine years, 90 days. Look, I'm a different human. I can't even get back to that headspace. I don't do that anymore. I don't operate that way. This is who I am. For the first time when you can do it on demand, you see the power you actually have. Because our companies, like one of our mission statements is to give people a limitless sense of ridiculous power. When you feel the control over yourself, which also has control of your life, it's an intoxicating, positive feeling of power. And that's what the book gives you. Man, I'll tell you what, I love talking to guys like you because you're in flow, you're living into your gifts, you've got a great voice, you've got a great, you've developed an amazing mindset and you're leveraging that 
to not only serve you, but more importantly, to serve others. If you watch anything, any keynote you've done, listen to any podcast you've been on. I, I've listened to one that you did with, uh, I love this woman, Kathy Heller. You know, Kathy, well, you had her yeah. on your podcast recently. Yeah. I have like this massive crush on Kathy Heller, not in that way, but like as far as a, a brand and, and her message and everything else, she's just unbelievable to me. So, but to hear you, you know, interact with her and extract these things, I've, I've heard her pause once in anything I've listened to. And it was when you asked her questions, like you're in your element, you're in your gift. Closing question, then I'll, I will, you can direct people to where you want them to go. Yeah. At what point or when do, or how did you give yourself permission to be fully in your gift and to achieve yeah. what you've achieved at this point? That's a great question, man. I don't know when I, permission would be an interesting statement because I think we, uh, we don't always give ourselves permission is a problem. I don't even know if I have given myself permission to be fully me. I think there's parts of Anthony that just don't belong in the world. <laughs> it's just, it just is. Like I, I do Same weird stuff in my family, right? That's just part of humanity. But I think the permission came when I realized it wasn't really about me. I've always told people, you cannot rob the world of the gift of you. And, and I realized that there is, without me intentionally, like there's some people that get into this space and the allure of being the focal point is what drives people. For me, I had that with football, man. I had the NFL. I was on the limelight and the stage. And then you get to the point of realizing like, yeah, it's lackluster, man. I, I want just to have fun at home. I'm looking forward to hanging with the family when we're done with this. Like that's what's really most important for me. But I also know that in what I do, there's value. So I have this cool cycle where I get to give in a way that fills me up. I get to give to the world like this. And it fills me up because I know I'm genuine when I do it and I live what I talk about. And so the permission came from me realizing that it wasn't really something that had to do with me. It had to do with, with something I was meant to do that I was called to do beyond what I felt like doing, right? So I didn't give myself permission. I gave myself like, uh, I, I let go of the e-break. I was like, I'm not going to stop my, my pressing out. So I talk, I share, I just do what feels most natural. And here's the thing. Most people's inadvertence to giving the permission is because what if somebody doesn't like me? What if I go out there and I'm wrong? And I realized, I don't know when, a couple of years back, I had made this statement accidentally, but it made sense. And I go, you know what? I realized that if, if I don't share myself to a level where someone hates me, then if, I, if someone doesn't know me enough to hate me, then certain people will never know me enough to love me. Because all it is is an expression. And if you like who I am, great. And if you don't, that's cool too. Like, but at the end of the day, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rob the world of the gift of me because somebody might not like me. Cause it's a necessity. Like not everybody loved Jesus. You know what I mean? Like there's just this natural part. So the permission came from realizing the only thing I'm not, I'm stopping me from giving permission is my fear of judgment from people. It really shouldn't matter in the first place. All right. And we're going to cut it there because you have just, I mean, I could go another hour with questions for you. I mean, this is, you, there's so much in this podcast. So let's do this. Where can <laughs> folks learn more about you? I talked at the jump about your website and everything, but wherever you want to direct folks or yeah. anything you want them to maybe go explore, explore your book, anything like that. Yeah. If you want to get the book, go to identityshiftbook.com. Um, if you go there, you can get the book and then come back with some like code stuff, the receipt from Amazon or if you choose to buy it. And if you use on the third step, the code that says book bonuses, you'll get a free audio book and a workbook that goes along with it for free um, that allows you to kind of do the things I'm talking about in a more in-depth way. Um, outside of that, find me on Instagram at Anthony Trucks, the fast way to find me. Uh, I do a bunch of weird, cool stuff, man. I just share ideas and thoughts all day, uh, mostly in like pre-created content. Because I have, I don't know, I have this aspect of where I'm not a big fan of living my entire life to the camera at all times. I like to live my life and then share what I feel like sharing when I think about it. I don't have this bug to like, here's my breakfast. I look at the bathroom, look at the poop in the toilet. Like, I don't do all that. It's just, I'm a dad, man. I live my life as a dad. And then I share the rest of whatever is in my mind. 
Excellent. Yeah. I don't want to see the poop in the toilet for sure. Yeah, uh, your website, anthonytrucks.com. There's a great uh, yeah. identity uh, survey on there that people can take yeah. to and get some real great information. So grab that quick. Cause if you don't take this, cause it's called a slower go quiz. We're going to be changing yeah. it pretty soon to your competitive advantage as a coach. I find that the, those who I draw on the most are coach executives, um, athletes that, in that realm. And we're going to be adjusting that quiz. It's a great quiz. So if, if you're here listening, go to the website, get watch it before it comes down. We're going to take it down. Um, but what will be in place is a pretty good uh, quiz too. Yeah. Appreciate you being on, man. Anthony, I, I, this has been amazing. Thank you again for, for coming yeah. on the show. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it. that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach and give as much value as we can to you on a week to week basis. Be sure to go over and check out gobundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that one to $5 million range or our champion division at 5 million plus or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast and you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.